Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about precision shooting and sniper training with two of the top sniper instructors in the world that I know, Jeff Chang and Tyler Ellsworth. These guys have over 50 years of collective experience navigating real-world challenges in both military and law enforcement operational environments. Uh, we had a long conversation. It was phenomenal. Uh, we got a lot of laughs in. We had a lot of really good conversations about training, about sniper programs, and everything in between. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this. Let's get after it. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey everyone, Adam Kanakin here. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. And um, what I'd love to do is just introduce my guests, uh, Tyler Ellsworth and Jeff Chang. And I'm going to let them kind of introduce themselves, who they are and where they're from. But uh, gentlemen, just a complete honor to have you here on the podcast with us today. So thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having us, man. It's uh, yeah. it's great to be here. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. So we we actually met uh, we met just the first time uh, a couple weeks ago at Shot Show. Um, I guess it's over a month now. It's been a while now, but uh, met back at Shot Show. You guys were presenting uh, Fort Daniel Defense during the Leap Program. Um, you guys are both snipers um that is kind of your bread and butter and so uh i was just excited to to have you guys on talk shop and um you guys are both also active law enforcement officers you guys have been doing that for for a long time so there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about during this conversation but before we get into all that why don't we just start off by you guys can do a quick uh cole's note introduction the 30 seconds of who you are and what you do so tyler why don't you hit that off first Cool. Uh, my name's Tyler Ellsworth. Uh, I'm co-owner with Jeff uh, with Standing Offhand. Uh, we're currently in business uh, doing some stuff with Daniel Defense, like you mentioned earlier. Um, currently still employed at a police department here in Arizona. I work for Prescott Police Department currently. Been there for uh, just over about 20 years. Um, been in the training world for probably 16 or 17 of that. Uh, and then as my sniper stuff, since we're going to talk about that, uh, been running that for about 15 years now, uh, somewhere around in there, you know, dates get screwed up, but been in there for a while, uh, met Jeff and that's where our relationship started. And we've just been running from there. Right on brother. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. Yes, sir. Hi folks. My name is Jeff Chang. I work for the Phoenix police department. I've been here for about 15 years, but I have, this is year 34 in the profession for me. So I'm getting kind of long in the tooth. Um, I've been doing the sniper job off and on mostly on for a little over 20 years now, both here domestically in at two different police departments, including Phoenix, and then also abroad as part of the Marine Corps and as a security contractor. Um, Tyler and I co-chair the, the Sniper SME Committee for the Arizona Tactical Officers Association. And we've been doing that for about eight years and conducting all of the training for Arizona snipers in that in that time um and then the, the the company standing offhand which is one that tyler and i stood up yes last year uh, as a, a long overdue sort of evolution of what we've been doing with the atoa so we're we're trying to spread the word on some different topics that the atoa uh, or that we have not covered with the atoa so here we are 
Well, I appreciate the hell of you both taking the time and joining me here on the podcast. Um, obviously, you can everybody here listening can understand that there's a wealth of knowledge and experience here. So really excited to tap into that. Um, let's talk about standing offhand first. Let's get let's let's knock that off, guys. Um, I'm really interested to hear about what you guys are doing with that. Like you said, you, you're connected with uh, uh, Arizona Tax Officers Association. Actually, interestingly enough, one of the guys that I work with a lot, uh, Lon Bartell. Um, was one of the guys that helped stand that organization up at the at, in the beginning of it. So um, I do have a little bit of uh, a background information on it, which is really cool. But let's talk about what you guys are doing for uh, training with your company right now. Well, we're we're like like I mentioned before, we we are initially this whole thing began out of our work together for the ATOA. Um, the fact that Tyler and I hit it off so well, I think we recognized that in the very first course that we attended as students together. And then based, I, I don't know, I think based on our personalities and our working relationship, the way that we play off of each other, I think I'd, I'd like to say that was noticed by the leadership within ATOA. Uh, and and then when the, when the, the time came to fill these two committee chair openings, uh, they, they asked us to do that because I think they kind of knew how how well we work together but lon lon and some of the other guys uh in the leadership of atoa put us in that spot and standing offhand has been something that has taken years to kind of come to fruition it began actually with the parent company of standing offhand which is called deadrift consulting that is the llc that standing offhand operates under so standing offhand is a trade name that's registered with the state uh <clears throat> but it it was designed so that Tyler and I can focus our professional efforts, our education experience and training, uh, the ideas that we have to address the discrepancies that, that like we have seen in, in not only training that we've taken, but also training that we have provided. Like we would love to be able to do something about A, B, and C, but we don't have the ability, the time, the resources, the finances in order to do that. So standing offhand is is our solution to that. It, it allows Tyler and I to do whatever the hell we want to do, what we think is is uh, a best way or a best practice, and then put that out there uh, and, and cover some of these the, some of these deficiencies or things that we we think need to be hammered on harder. Um, we stood this thing up last year. It took us probably two, maybe three years of, of discussing it, coming up with a plan, procrastinating, getting busy, life shit happening. And then finally it was like, cause I don't know how many times I've heard Tyler tell me, Hey man, it's time to push play. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. But, and there's always a, but right. It's almost like having a child. You're never, you can't have, you can't plan to have kids when you're ready because like honestly we're never freaking ready for what we experience when we have a child so this is our baby and um I, I think it's been going reasonably well so far we're still in the the infancy of it to stay on the on the baby uh theme that we're still in the infancy of it as our first year truly operating uh independently however opportunities such as what we're doing right now seem to present themselves when you focus on this and you start spreading the way when, when I actually commit to it, then the opportunities present themselves. You know what I mean? So uh, we've gone into a lot of the stuff early this year, late last year, 
with a renewed sense of like motivation, excitement, um, commitment, wanting to wanting to talk about it, wanting wanting to push it forward and and make some progress as opposed to maybe just kind of uh, sitting and waiting for something to happen. Um, that's never a, like been a real high percentage solution for success in anything, I think. Um, so we're moving forward. We got a few things on the calendar, uh, some things spread out throughout the year. It's actually turned out to be a little bit busier than what we expected. But I think if we hustle and, and kind of bust our ass a little bit, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go someplace. But that's kind of sort of a background overall broad stroke of standing offhand. Yeah, I guess some of my piece for it, just to hit on a little different angle, is, is that we don't want to copy somebody else's company. We want to bring uh, something new that isn't being currently answered for in the community that we've seen. Uh, we want to adapt uh, the stuff that we're giving uh, to make it something that they need and not just another course, right? Um, so we want to stay away from some of the other stuff, and we want to focus on uh, courses that we believe aren't being offered. We're currently offering a team leader development course in the sniper realm, uh, sniper instructor school, focusing on our night vision class, and then uh, vehicle hide class, and then we offer some basic and some intermediate schools. Uh, intermediate schools probably hands down one of our uh, more preferred classes at the time, uh, just because it's it's a non-traditional school. It's not taught on a range. Uh, it's taught out in the environment where you're actually working. So that offers something that most companies aren't doing at this time. So we're just trying to not necessarily uh, focus on doing it just because nobody else is, but focus on it because people need it because it's that outside of the realm. Important point there. If I can add one more thing, and a real important point of what Tyler just said is <clears throat> we're not trying to like our company is special to us. It's special to Arizona law enforcement because we know a lot of the, the, the snipers that are currently working. We've trained many of them. Um, but at the same time, like we're not trying to s set some kind of a benchmark that nobody else has ever touched. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it, it, there's only so much you can do realistically with firearms training. And we understand that there are like the, the market is super saturated with with training companies out there who are doing an outstanding job and many of them who know it's many of them may be may do a better job than we do and that's fine and good like there's some competition but it's we're not trying to be like the end-all be-all and if you don't listen to us you're freaking stupid that that attitude absolutely turns me off and we don't want any part of that hmm. what we do want to do though is take our collective experience which is you know decades um, of real world actual law enforcement sniper operations with a with a smattering of stuff from overseas and turn that into something that our snipers here in our communities um, can can realistically use tomorrow uh, and it, it's and is relevant to everything they do regardless of how minor that that little thing may be because there's a lot of stuff that gets taken for granted a lot of stuff that never gets thought of considerations that other snipers in other environments don't understand or realize that we deal with and we're trying to keep everything within the context of law enforcement sniper operations um yes i've been overseas and i've, I've served in combat yes i've done the 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 ddm position for a, a contracting country at a u.s embassy 
those things don't necessarily mean that I know everything about how to be an American law enforcement policing our own people. Um, and, and, and behind a scoped rifle while I do that. So we do not try to push our courses on military necessarily dudes getting ready to deploy. Like, here's what you should do because I have all this experience in Phoenix or Los Angeles or Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, I understand Tyler understands that our methods don't necessarily apply to what they're going to do. Some of it may be useful, but it's not like it's going to, it's a completely different mission. So the focus of standing offhand and, and it, it's that this point is always pushed in everything that we put out there in terms of, of description or, or definition is that we focus on helping and training law enforcement officers who are assigned as snipers. Um, it doesn't mean we can't branch out into handgun carbine shotgun. Um, we may, however, our expertise truly lies in the operation of a bolt action rifle, the scoped rifle within American law enforcement. So we, we really try to, to focus on that specifically. That's really cool. There's a lot of things you guys brought up there that are super synergistic with our theories and philosophy with what we do here at ILED, right? You talked about training the gaps. You talked about providing actionable, relevant, and defensible training. That's, that's practical, practicable that can be used now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about there's no, there's no one-size-fits-all training, right? right? Which, which right. that right now, and you guys know this, especially across the United States and up here in Canada, that's something that's, that's we actively have to try to fight against, which are these massive companies that are saying, hey, we have a solution for everybody. Doesn't matter who you are, what you do. This is this this de-escalation training is going to work for everybody. Nope. No, it's fucking not. You, you would you would think that people would understand that, or and I think they are. I have more faith in like the human intellect as a whole that people understand that. Like they know they can go online to buy a T-shirt and it says or a hat, right? That says one size fits all. Well, yeah, okay. You didn't freaking pull my head when you designed that cap. The damn thing doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people kind of, they understand that they take it for great. They take it for what it is, which is a kind of a marketing tagline, a ploy to put out there to attract business and bring people in. And then hopefully on the company side, hopefully our students, our clients get 70% uh, of what we're pushing out there. And that's fine. I guess if that's your business model, then, then go, go ahead. And I don't really care how much money you, you make the principle behind what Tyler and I do is that we, we will literally tailor every one of our courses. We have, you know, baseline outlines and baseline courses that we, we use as a template. And then we will absolutely tailor every one of these courses to meet the needs, the environment, the range facilities, uh, the cost, the time factor, whatever it is that that department or the, this particular group of clients specifies we will do our best to tailor that course to fit it. Now, the other side of that is if we go to teach, say the sniper instructor course, which is a five day course, and they say, hey, we only have three, then I'm going to refuse to do that because I'm not going to, I don't want to give them, uh, you know, 50% of what it takes in order for me, not that it, Tyler and I are, are some governing body, but they're going to get a certificate from us which puts us as, which creates us as part of their training record and training history. 
So if they wind up on the witness stand and they have to present all of their training, like our names are going to be there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to, I'm not willing to put us in that, in that position, number one. And number two, if I can't give them what I, what they need in order to be effective and uh, superior instructors at, for snipers, then then honestly, I don't want them doing that at all until they're able to dedicate that kind of time and effort in order to to accomplish that. I mean, it's important, right? It's important how we train people, and and what what we give them. <clears throat> so, um, if over the course of the last twenty plus years, I have learned these things and boiled it down to five days of intensive instruction in order to give you the most of what I can, then that's 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 a very uh concentrated form that i'm trying to give it to them to and i've already cut as much as we can out of it that yes maybe was a little nugget here and there but i could incorporate it into the overall picture on this and give it to them as a package um so we we don't want to shortchange the student nor do we want to shortchange ourselves or put any either of us in like a compromising position down the road um, but that tailoring, uh, tailor-made aspect of what we do, it does open up opportunities for departments to, that are in a different state and we have to travel and maybe all they have is a, is a 100 yard range. Well, we can do it. There's a shit ton of stuff you can do on a hundred yard range and we can make something, we can make it work for that by getting creative, uh, and and changing the curriculum a little bit to fit what they what they have and then leave the rest to them to go out and seek on their own time maybe find longer distance stuff or find a, a more suitable venue to treat to to train a specific topic um so we we we, we don't want to be a cookie cutter company um we're also not in this to like retire off of the like the focus is not making as much money as possible um our time is valuable and we should be compensated for it uh, as well as our families and my dog and everything else that happens in life like that all that there's a priority to all of them um but again you know we're not trying to we're, we're not trying to rape anything or or we're, our our primary focus is getting the information out to the people that that need it so they can use it mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome there's a lot of, you know, there's so many things that come into my head as you're, as you're talking there. Um, one thing you were talking about how you're customizing courses, right. And, 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 and my very limited understanding of, of, uh, of what you guys do as a profession, it's something as simple as, you know, you have a, all the high speed training is great, right? We talk about this with guys that do the, all the tactical operations courses. They're like, Oh, I got to go do some stuff with this tier one unit. That's awesome. And then they come back and they try to train it to their teach the same stuff to their guys. And you're like, you're missing about 87 steps here, chief, like slow down, Bubba. Like we can't, we can't take, we can't take that stuff because you're now taking something that they've spent years yeah. practicing and training and thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to show it to your officer three times over the next week and expect them to do that operationally. Mm-hmm. Right. You're going to get someone killed. Well, um, and you know how it is when you when you train something that long, it takes that long to learn that step, right? You can't go to a five day class and come back 
without prior knowledge of the of that information and be an instructor on it, right? Um, what do they say? You retain about 30% of something that you just learned, especially in a higher stress situation. So you're trying to bring 100% back to teach this, but you only really retain 30%. And that's where problems arise in this, you know? That's where lack of continuing to train or going back to that same course two or three times to get the full effect of it to actually come back and be able to implement that. It's just not possible to go to that type of a course and come back and give that to your team and think it's going to run smoothly. Well, that's yeah. that's kind of what we're – that's why I let kind of exists, right? And I, I know I haven't had a chance to tell you guys what, what we do really, but the concept of the platform and, and the community is exactly what you had said. Everything has to be adult learning based, right? We have to understand andragogy. We have to understand pedagogy. We have to understand how human beings learn and retain information, Sure. right? And so to your exact point, when an officer goes to training, whether it's an instructor trainer school or it's even just a base level school, even an academy, what is the follow-up? What are we doing to reinforce those lessons and those skills after that course is over? Because usually what will happen, you'll attend a course, and maybe that's the only time they ever get to attend the course with, with you as instructors, right? So mm -hmm. there's a massive drop-off that happens, like you had said, right? I think some of the numbers are even showing, like, within 30 days, you may lose up to 95% mm -hmm. of that information, on average, depending on the person. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. if I know I'm going to walk away with a... For me as an instructor, I'll go to a 40-hour course knowing that I'm going to walk away with one tiny piece of something that I'm going to that I can use and implement. And the rest yeah. is just kind of a nice to have. Yeah. What I, what Islet is trying to do is, so for example, somebody attends one of your training courses. Now they come onto the platform and they say, Hey, I'm interested in firearms. I'm interested in sharpshooting. I'm interested in whatever it is. Now we have all of the experts that we know that are in that realm. And those people have access to them on a continual basis. So they stay up to date on all of those topics. If something comes up, they can ask a question hey, this situation just happened in our agency. What are your thoughts? And they get that direct feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's constantly given and, and driven back home for them. So um, I love your point, which is, yeah, absolutely. You can't go to it, especially when you were talking about very specific training, like a sniper school, mm -hmm. and, and expect to pick all of that stuff up and take it back and be proficient at it after, a, after a course. It's not possible. And anyway. we're constantly we're constantly evaluating that 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 whole this whole what this whole conversation for the last five or so, so minutes, we're constantly evaluating that. A week ago today, so last Friday, we just finished a a basic sniper school here locally in Arizona, and we both came away from that. Now we had some some weather challenges and we had some some other little things here and there that that we kind of had to to work around, but. We came away with that, and we just literally have a, had a conversation about this just earlier this week. We are going to change our basic school. We're going to rewrite the outline and organize it in a different way from uh, from the from the the standpoint of like day one, day two. Like each day is going to be reorganized because we both recognize the fact that <clears throat> we can spend four hours on day one. The first four hours of the first day with a classroom full of, uh, you know, you would, we assume that they are brand new to this position. Um, and we can go through all this curriculum and all this data and all these PowerPoints and these videos and photos and whatever else. And we can have these discussions and 
if we end it there, then like the retention value is dismal. It's like, it's ridiculous. And you can, and you know, you guys know as well as I do, look, you, you can look at a student's eyes and watch their expressions and their body language. And, and you'll see that attention span or that comprehension level physically drop. You can almost watch it drain out. Um, so with that in mind, we're making some pretty significant changes to our basic school in order to um, increase the, the comprehension and increase the retention value for these guys. Because ultimately, like the, the end result of a basic school should be that this guy leaves that school on, on the last day, goes to work the next day, gets a call or is called out and is deployed on, on uh, the, the day after the school ends and is able to competently perform his perform his whatever the fun, whatever the, the incident requires. Now, uh, you know, whether that's shooting, observing, reporting, getting into a position where nobody else can, regardless of what the requirement is, to an extent, um, we want them to be able to to walk away from our basic school with with the competence and the confidence in themselves to be able to pull off not to not be afraid of it i mean nervousness is one thing but we don't want them to be afraid of it we want them to feel confident that they know what they're doing um and so because of that we're going to change things and and make it make it better and then you know in addition to that if you look at the way the police culture the the society of policemen across the nation is right now um try to find spare time to go train like holy shit everybody is dealing with you know uh, manpower shortages and inability to hire people and fill classes um sweeping changes trying to move like playing the shell game like the, the city government's playing the shell game where we're not really increasing numbers but we're putting this guy over there and these three over there um it's all it's all smoke and mirrors because nothing substantive is actually happening to, to, to make the, the police department better. But these guys are still, they, they don't have the time to get the training. They're either going on their own, spending their own money or they're, or they're not getting it. Or the one required day for the SWAT sniper on a team per month that he actually goes to, to focused sniper in uh, training. That may be the only time in that month based on his workload that he's able to actually get out and shoot. So you take this intensive course of, of X number of days and you give them all this information, the retention percentage is already low. And then the next time they train is the next month for one day, maybe, maybe for four to six hours. And then the next time after that for one day for four to six hours. So, where does what skills are actually being increased? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if they. I don't know if they are. And well, um, <clears throat> go ahead, Tyler. No, sorry, man. I, I didn't catch off. I wanted to add to it a couple things. Um, I think and me and Jeff have, have talked about it about changing our basic school to better adapt to students' needs today. Students of like my age and Jeff's age, you just sucked it up and you just did it, right? And, but I think nowadays, I think um, students are expecting a different curriculum, a different setup. And I think we really witnessed this off of our last class. Last class we just ran was very young. It was probably the youngest class that we've ran 
as in as in uh, experience on the gun, right? So we witnessed the shutdown of students just because we had pushed them too far in one realm. And I think we need to adapt to that. We talked to that at the beginning and realizing what your students need. They're not, they're not there for me. I'm there for them. I'm there to give them the best training possible. And I think that this change of this class is really going to adapt to that um, across our entire curriculum. Uh, the next piece with that, where Jeff was talking about, you know, how do we get people to get out and train? Unfortunately, in the world, and I don't agree with it, um, I think if you're hired to do a job, I think your department or your employer should pay you to be proficient and stay up with that. The unfortunate part about it is the department's not willing to do so. So in the amount of effort it takes into here, it takes a different breed of person to be able to say, you know what? I'm going to spend, I'm going to get up extra early on Saturday and I'm going to go shoot for four hours or I'm going to go work on some tactics for four hours on my own to better myself, to help retain the information that I just gained out of this last class. But I, the change in the world today that we've seen, people don't do this job like me and Jeff did. People do this now to put a name on a resume to say, yep, I did this as a promotional builder. We got on the team. You stayed for life. Uh, I was on our team for almost 16 years. Uh, today, to have somebody stay for four or five is very minimal. But that's another piece that me and Jeff are trying to get to change through some of our classes and find better retention through those employees and find a better pick to put in those jobs to where when you do send them to a $1,500, $2,000 school, that you actually get that information retained because the employee wants to stay there and has the heart and desire to go out and do those little things on their own or to seek out stuff on their own or call us back, call another instructor and ask questions. Uh, but unfortunately in today's society, we're seeing a huge change and we're not getting that type of, of individuals much anymore. I'm not saying everybody's not that way, but that's a huge change in our realm and why training has to change these days because we have to adapt the training uh, to the people that are coming. They're not the old school guys that you could yell at and friggin' jump on and, and just kick the dog shit out of them all day and you suck it up and move on because that's training, right? Uh, but the world changed and we're not dealing with those students anymore. We had a really interesting discussion last night. We did a round table on retention and recruitment. I told you guys that offline yeah. and the, the conversation ended up circling around at one point. We talked about what is the current, you know, who are the people that are currently coming in, you know, as recruits. Mm -hmm. And there's a big difference between people coming in as recruits now and, 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? Um, I, I brought up the example. I mean, I'm a DT guy. That's that's my background. Mm -hmm. When I go to a class and it's all, you know, newbies, they're, they're really green and you get in there and you say, all right, who here has been in a fight before? Who here has been nope. punched in the face before? No one's hand goes up. <laughs> hey, who here's ever been like yelled at aggressively before? Well, my dad yelled at me once like, fuck off <laughs> like oh man and it's like i i had this thing and i, and I, I couldn't say it on the round table but i'll say it here on the podcast i have a theory that i would like to implement and this is probably why i'm not allowed to you know teach at academies ever um if somebody put i go here's how the class starts has anybody here ever been punched in the face and whoever has okay great step aside everybody else line up and i'm gonna hit everybody as hard as i can right so because I would rather have you have that experience for the first time in your life in a controlled environment 
yep. than in an uncontrolled environment on the street. Right. Yeah. Right. Because right. It, chances are that's going to happen. And mm -hmm. we need to start preparing our officers for those scenarios and to pretend like it's never going to happen. You're setting them up for failure. Sure. And so, Look, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Luckily, I, I'm currently stationed at our academy and, and uh, teach there full time at the moment. Um, our academy does it. We make them fight. Um, whether you fought or not, uh, we put you through like a foot pursuit deal. We stretch out just like if you were chasing somebody on the job. Uh, we make them wear gloves and headgear. Uh, we're not trying to kill anybody, but you still get the effect of what it's like to get punched in the mouth. Everybody's got a plan until they get hit, right? And Mike Tyson said it best. And if you've never been hit in a controlled environment, you'll never survive on the street. And But that's across the board. We need to implement as close to the job description we can in training uh, to where they're better prepared for it in the real world of, of every day. And, and, it's, and it changes. And, and, we, and we do that in Phoenix too. I mean, I'm at the police academy also. I'm just assigned to the firearms training detail, so I don't do the DT stuff. But I mean, they do that in Phoenix too. Like they, like they'll put them in these DT rooms and they'll have what, what they call chaos drills where a guy's in a big red man suit and he just won't stop no matter what you do. And you're, they, they, I think the point is they're trying to make you feel like you're fighting for your life so that you continue to just push and push and push. Um, and I would venture to say that I'll bet most police academies, I'll bet it's rare that there's a police academy out there that doesn't do some form of this kind of training. Because I, I think everybody realizes um, you're going to get in a fight. It's our responsibility, our, us as in the police department, to try to prepare these guys and protect them or give them some form of, of self-defense education. To what degree? I don't know. I think there, there's the question, like, who does, to, who does it to what level? And the better departments, I think, maybe go go further but I, I remember back in 89 when I started this career and I worked for I was hired by LAPD we 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 boxed the shit out of each other and we did the foot pursuit drill while we're trying to broadcast something on a radio and you ran a specific distance and then you ran into a like a roped off box in the middle of a grass field and then and they quickly put you know whatever gear protective gear on you that, that you needed and and you went at it for a minute or three whatever it was um, the, the stuff back then was certainly not as advanced or comprehensive as it is now. Like when I see what they do at, at the Academy in Phoenix, um, I'm like, well, it's, that's good. That's good. I mean, I think it's, it, it, there's been some advancements in that. Um, but, but I, I am also absolutely not opposed to Adam to your solution. If you haven't been hit in the face, then here we go. And you're right. <laughs> I mean, you're right. That's what the academy experience is supposed to be, right? It's supposed to expose you to these elements of the job within a safe and controlled environment because you are not going to punch this guy in the face because you're trying to take his gun and kill him with it. You're doing this as part of an educated process. And you have to see, feel, understand what that feels like so that when it does happen, you don't shut down and, and, and lose, you lose your life over it. Yeah. Um, there was so, Tony. Yeah. So Tony Blauer put out a, a post the other the other day, um, and it was something up to the effect of "We need to stop romanticizing violence." Mm -hmm. um, and and the purpose of it basically being was, even in training, we 
aren't realistic with the way we conduct scenarios and how we actually develop and, and create these training programs. For example, we know that, that there's a very good chance that when you, if you're going to be in a fight, it's not going to be because you had the opportunity to square up against somebody right. and be like, okay, we're going to fight. Yeah. Get ready, set, go. Mm -hmm. It's you're going to be cheap shotted from behind yeah. without seeing it coming. You're going to get your bell rung. You're going to be on the ground. They're going to be on top of you before you even know what the fuck's happening. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Right. Yes. We mm -hmm. just don't, we don't train that because again, we, we partially there's a huge there obviously there's a big liability concern right and that agencies won't allow it to happen because they say wait a second you want to cheap shot our guys in training <laughs> like no like no that's not happening but again it's, we we come into these limitations with training where we know like i know what i need to train you to do and i know that i'm limited in how i can do that and so this is where we start having these conversations of what is what what are the workarounds how can we start doing this? And so the more conversations like this that we have, I think the better we're going to be able to evolve the, the culture of training and the understanding for the administrations and saying, listen, I understand where you're coming from with liability and all this bullshit. But would you rather have your officer break their arm or have their arm broken in a, in a training room or have their arm broken and then have their gun stolen and having them killed on the street? Mm -hmm. because that's the reality of it and people mm -hmm. just sure. don't want to have the, those real conversations mm -hmm. we can fuck up and get hurt as much as we want in training right yeah and you're going to survive that and you're going to survive it mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i mean that it's it's just a frustrating conversation that we have it's it seems like it's a, a, this fucking repeat cycle right it's like we identify it we know it people acknowledge it and then just like everything else nothing happens and then we just start from square one again right right yeah, and instead of addressing it and going doing it, people throw a fit. And it's all on the admin side. It's about numbers and it's about money and it's about we can't get anybody hired. This is the only guy we got. And please, God, don't break him. And uh, we need him to start yesterday, you know. And it even goes deeper than that. Uh, our, let's take our intermediate class. Uh, we have I've had chiefs call us before and go, why does my guy need to know how to shoot out to and beyond a thousand yards? And I'm like, why doesn't he? You know, uh, Phoenix PD picked a, a patrol guy up with a carbine, landed him in the middle of the desert, and he took a, what, a 270-yard shot, Jeff? Mm -hmm. is, the, is the opportunity there? But if, I, if you're better trained at, at the extreme end of it, aren't I better prepared for the easy ones that come on the street, right? And that's where we're getting at this is let's, let's train to the extreme level and hope to God that that was harder than what I find on the street. But we still catch... Uh, crap from the administrators because why why we're you know we only deploy here or there i've been deployed out at 400 yards before um and thank god i had the training i did because if not i i wouldn't have been useful in that position so let's push it to the to the nines and hope to god we never use it right and then you know <clears throat> specifically with regard to that that technique or that training technique of of having police snipers shoot to distances that may that too many may be unrealistic right like anything over like let's call it even 200 yards um or i'll give tyler the benefit of the doubt because he deployed at 400 so anything beyond 400 yards why do you even need to do that and it's a valid question i think but it's one that is rooted in ignorance and 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 uh 
a an inability to grasp the value of of something uh, just because they don't understand the principles that that are beneath it. So for us, we always tr we always train, and this goes back to uh, before standing offhand was even a thought in my mind. Um, but you train to those distances not because you you expect to take a thousand yard shot or an 850 yard shot on a on a live human. Quite honestly, I think if you are a if you're a, a police sniper and that's part of your repertoire that you expect to do and you see this bad guy at 850 yards and you say to yourself, oh, I can make that shot. I think you're foolish um, and you're, you're opening yourself up to some some stuff that you don't want to deal with. But the value of it is the confidence that the that the sniper gets, the education he gets in ballistics and and math and environmental conditions and confidence in his weapon and in his system confidence in himself those things go in in like they're like exponential in value those those little things go beyond just hey that was a great trigger press or hey you hit him you hit the x on this freaking target at this distance that's right in front of us um it's not it's not an immediate gratification thing. It's more a delayed and extended gratification because you continue to draw from that experience that one day when you were out in the desert with Tyler and Jeff and you were banging steel at, you know, between 800 and 1100 yards, you continue to draw on that experience that uh, throughout your, your career that you can actually accomplish this if you apply your, your, your skills properly. And it's motivating to, in order to keep those skills up to, you know, practice, like a, a level of proficiency in those skills. If you don't practice them and you don't think about them and you never touch them until the moment that you need them, then chances are high that you're going to fail in that moment um, because you, you can't just let it lie and expect that you're going to take it out of the box and it's going to work first time. Um, so, the you know, People can argue all day long and they can point at statistics all day long about the average police sniper engagement distance or or the the rarity with which snipers are engaging suspects beyond, you know, at, at beyond 200 yards or beyond 150 yards. OK, yeah, those statistics are are legitimate and it's it's done based on a poll of, of, of officers that actually did this. But that fact, those facts, those statistics do not negate the value of training well beyond that into the unrealistic, into maybe the one-tenth of one percent of your entire career that maybe you'll get the opportunity to actually do this. That, that just because of the rarity, the rarity of that does not negate the, the value of the experience or the training. So we, we try to incorporate that into what we what we present without harping on it so much that it takes away from some of the more common things that actually have to be like other things that need to be mastered in order to do this job. Uh, but it's, it's it winds up being about balance and recognition of value of something. Do you guys play pool? No. I, I used to play pool uh, as I actually I grew up playing pool as a kid. I'd play in like I actually ended up going to worlds and, and all this shit. Wow, nice. Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I love um I'm gonna take a a, a page from my buddy Chris Butler's book and, and trying to contextualize the concepts that you were talking about for maybe some people listening to this. 
Um, and I think you guys are going to pick up on this really quickly. So um, are you familiar with the that there's a different types of pool games and tables? So there's like bar tables, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's snooker tables, right? right? Which are much, much larger. So the difference, the main difference between a snooker table and a uh, bar table out, outside of the just the, like the full size of the table are the balls that are used and the pocket, the size of the pockets and the shapes of the pockets. On snooker tables, the corners are rounded and the pockets are much smaller and tighter and the balls are about 70% of the size as a regular pool ball, right? Mm-hmm. So on a ma- And then on a regular table, you have a ball and the pockets are about a, a if you were to look at the size of the, a snooker ball and a snooker pocket, it's maybe about 125% the size of the ball. So there's 25% wiggle room in there. Mm-hmm. On a bar table, it's probably about 150%. So you have about a mm-hmm. ball and a half. So they're much larger. Sure. So when you're practicing and you're training, if you're playing snooker, you can practice on a snooker table and practice shooting. And you're, you're, you're li- and these are motor skills, right? And, and repetition. Mm-hmm. And we're lining up and practicing the shots and angles and everything. The balls are going into the pockets. You can do the same thing on the bar table, and it's easier on the bar table. But what we used to do is I would take bar room balls, and I would put put them on a snooker table, and I would practice potting balls on a snooker table with the larger ball, where my where my margin of error is like it's next to nothing, Mm -hmm. because if you if you're off by a fraction, it's going to rattle out because of the way the pockets are shaped, it's Mm -hmm. it's going to rattle out. So what you end up doing is you're becoming much more proficient and much more accurate, mm-hmm. but you're getting the repetition on the same weight and, and size of the cute of the balls that you're going to be shooting on. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. So yep. then when you move back to a table that's much smaller, the the distance travel the balls are traveling is shorter and the pockets are wider, it's it almost feels like cheating. Mm-hmm. Right. And we hear that a lot. Like uh, we usually start off on our hundred yard range every day to confirm before we go off and do bigger things, you know? And we'll shoot distance for two days or so, come back to the 100-yard range, and almost every student on there is like, why do I need a rifle? I'll shoot this with my pistol from here. Um, it Because comfort builds confidence. And if you're confident, you have everything in the, in the world to win. And that's exactly what you just explained. Uh, what we try and implement in the courses is to make you the most confident out of comfort that we can in an uncomfortable position. Yeah. And that, and I, we've heard that a lot, like, uh, that, like what essentially what you're describing with the bar tables and the snooker tables and the relative sizes of pockets and balls that like, it, I mean, it's almost cliche, which is why I don't use it very much. Cause I, I'm not, I think it needs to be qualified, but you know, if, if you can make a shot at 800 yards and it makes the hundred yard shot easy, well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And no. Um, be, uh, I, that is not why we push our students to extended ranges. It's not to try to make the shorter shot easier um, because distance is, is like this much of the equation when it comes to actually making the shot on a live mm-hmm. human. And by live human, I don't mean any human. I mean like an American citizen. Like these are people, like there's no difference between me and them except for the decisions that they made in their lives, right? I'm not better than that person necessarily on just a basic human level. Uh, our job is not to shoot and kill people. Our job is to stop people from making bad decisions. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes that requires lethal force. 
and one of the unfortunate consequences of lethal force is often death. So uh, we're not trying to, what we want to do is like it's what Tyler kind of touched on is comfort equals confidence, confidence and confidence equals performance. If you are, if you have confidence in what you are doing physically, if you have confidence in the tools that you're using, then you will perform better. Like there's, that's a, that's a hard line right there. Like you will perform better. Um, so we, the whole point of trying to push people outside of a comfort zone and stump them with wind calls and switching winds that are going different directions and mirage. And it's not as far as you think it is, or it's further than you think it is, whatever, all of those little, little, uh, riddles that are part of the whole process of shooting at these ranges is to get people to think logically, to not become emotional, to try in spite of failure, and then to ultimately experience success. And then with that success, diagnose the process it took to get there so that you can replicate it or that, so that you've learned something so you can make less mistakes in order to get to the same result of success. And ultimately the ultimate proficiency is there, there's my target. These are the conditions. I'm, I read them correctly. I apply the adjustments that I need to. I fire that shot properly. It goes exactly where I'm, I'm, I'm aiming. And that is, that's the most efficient process that we can, that, that you can have with it, but it takes experience and exposure and failure in order to do that in an environment that makes you uncomfortable. Um, there's no way for us to replicate the the anxiety and the, and the stress of being inside 50 yards and literally like I know that sounds short, but inside 50 yards in an elevated position, looking at a veteran sitting in the in the parking lot of the VA hospital with a gun under his chin. Like, how do you replicate that? You, like, you, we, we literally cannot do that. Um, but you want to talk about stress and anxiety fear, um, moral, uh, moral conflict. Um, that's about as hard as it gets. And, and that 50 yard distance means, um, I can read every expression on his face. I can literally see him thinking and making decisions to go one way or another. I can see everything, every emotion in his face. I can watch him breathe. I can watch him take that deep breath and blow it out, close his eyes, scrunch his face. You can see all these things. You become part, you're, you're right in the car with him. And, and there's no way to replicate that, that kind of emotional response from me, the sniper watching this. So I, I can't, I can't make it that difficult, but what I can do is I can make you uncomfortable in, in the environment. I can, I, I, we can say, we, we can apply all of those external stressors, whether it's time compression or it's, or it's body position or it's target aspect, target size, distance, um, angles. We can change, we can try to manipulate all those things to make it more difficult mentally as a mental exercise. Um, and that's all we can control is, is that aspect of it. So we're trying to eliminate specific variables that we have we have influence on knowing that there are going to be, there's a whole nother package of variables that we can't even touch that they themselves as a human are going to have to cope with themselves. They have to come up with that solution. And that sort of like comes all the full circle back to 
um, retention and selection or selection and retention. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, man, the equation is super complicated. It's like watching Sheldon on Big Bang Theory on his whiteboard. Like, I don't understand any of that shit, but it makes sense to him. Well, this is our version of that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's it can be pretty heavy. It's it's interesting. So there's like like you had said, there's the skill set, and then there's the mindset. Yeah. Right. There's the physical and the psychological, and and it sounds like what you're saying is, I mean, the the physical skills can be taught, right? Yeah. There's there's great shooters everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But just because you're a great shooter doesn't mean you're going to be an effective sniper. Right. No. Right. Right. And, and you and and if I recall the, the conversation when you guys were talking in uh, in Vegas there, mm -hmm. you know, you were saying like your job is like ninety nine percent like intelligence gathering and communication. Mm -hmm. And it, there's so many components to to becoming a, a sniper that go so far outside of being able to to action and function mm -hmm. a weapon effectively. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so. I want to get into that, but I want to do it under the premise of what we had just talked about, which is the the selection um, or recruitment. I mean, we think of recruitment and retention in, in law enforcement as who are we recruiting into the department? And then how do we keep them as officers in the department? Um, mm -hmm. But it happens with all of the specialty units, tactical and, and everything. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we'll call that selection, right? Mm -hmm. So they go through a selection, but there there is a recruitment component to that where you guys will go out and seek potential candidates to say, hey, or have you ever considered coming in so, and going through selection? Um, yes. But what is that? My question is initially is going to be, what types of people are you looking for during that process? Is there a certain type of person? Are there traits that you're, are you looking for somebody who has time behind a rifle? Are you looking for somebody who has that the mental stuff down, locked down? Like, what are those components that you guys look? If, if I could say, hey, you can have any person in the world that you want for your, your sniper team, who are those people that you guys are going to be reaching out and trying to grab? Mm -hmm. Tyler? Um, you know, a couple of things. Uh, it's funny you talk about are we reaching out and doing uh, that type of stuff. When I first started on the team, years ago, it was, if you want us, you come find us. They didn't come and recruit us because we had so many people showing up that everybody showed up. So they got to take a look at everybody. I, you know, when I was testing, there'd be 20 or 30 people test for one spot. Um, and now we, we get three spots and four people show up. So I think times are changing in that aspect where we as team members need to start taking a look at the uh, qualified candidates that are out there and start taking a viable look at them and start a better recruitment uh, process for that because that helps the team better. Uh, and it really comes down to, are you a fit for the team? It's not, does the team fit me? I need to be a fit for the team. I need that. I need to be that critical self-thinker, that self-motivated individual that doesn't have to be told what to do. Um, I want somebody on a team that doesn't want to be a sniper. I want somebody on the team that wants to do every job on the team and know that job intimately. And once they get there, that's when I really want to start looking at that person and going, that guy right there knows the team inside and out. That's the guy that I want to put out there because he understands 
100% of that team make up, or she, right? I say he is a general term. We're starting to see more and more females that are transitioning over on the team side, which is fantastic. But I want that guy that that isn't just focused on a job, right? Because that person to me was is like, uh, that's for them. That's not for the team, right? I don't need somebody that's there for themselves. I need somebody that's there for the team. Uh, but like I'm getting at is if you don't know 100% of the team aspect and how they work and what they do and what they need, uh, in my opinion, you're not going to be an effective sniper because we're not trigger pullers. It's very easy to take anybody. You could take a bad shooter, put them through a school and give them some one-on-one. They're going to come out better. I can't teach you to be a critical thinker on your own. The rest of the team has relief. The rest of the team has somebody that can give them a 30-minute timeout. I need somebody that is capable and willing to go the long haul by themselves. And that's only learned um, from time on the team. Uh, you have to be able to evaluate that person. In my opinion, I don't think I can look at somebody just off of one setting or one testing and say, yep, that's going to be my next sniper. That's going to be the next guy I put on the gun. Uh, I want to be able to evaluate an individual for a longer period of time. Now, obviously, there's traits that people will demonstrate on their everyday job um, prior to becoming a team member that kind of lend to that that person will fit there because they're already doing the requirements on the road every day of learning the entire process and not just a specialized piece. So that's what I really want to look at. And I think that that's where the big piece of us going out and recruiting anymore and not waiting for them to come to us, that we can go out and actively say, hey, you're you're the type of guy that I would like to see on the team because of the job that you're currently doing. Um, and that's a big change. That's something that's happening now. Uh, and part of that is because of the retention problem. Uh, you get these guys that, yeah, they might be a good guy. They might do okay. But they come to the team to put their name on there, get the tab, and move on because it's a, it's a promotion builder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would I would add a little bit to that in that while I was on the team here with Phoenix uh, as the as the team leader, and I use that team or that term loosely because we didn't have the title of team leader. I was the lead fire. I was the lead sniper instructor for the unit. But what that translates into is team leader. But I would actually I have actively recruited officers from outside the team to test knowing that they were interested in filling the sniper position and that they would be a good fit for that. Um, however, th- that was, that was kind of rare because I don't, I didn't know enough people throughout the department. I've been on the police department here for 15 years with Phoenix specifically, and I've only worked in one patrol division um, as a, as a patrol officer. And then, went to the SWAT team and spent the time there. And now I'm at the Academy. So I, I don't, don't have the exposure to like the entire membership of the department to know who's who. Um, however, yeah, there were specifics that I was looking for. There were specific things that I wanted to see in one human versus another that would give me an idea of, of whether or not they had the propensity to do this job or, or had the, like the personality to do that. And, Many of those things have nothing to do at all with shooting proficiency. Now, ideally, do I want somebody that knows his way around a bolt gun um, and understands what it means to shoot further than handgun ranges? What? Yes, I do. Um, but I'll leave it. I'll I'll leave it at that. 
because that does not necessarily mean a former Marine scout sniper or a or an, an army sniper or any military member. Quite honestly, if you look at the civilian precision shooting world right now, they would outshoot all of us all day long, every single day. Um, but there is the difference. Um, for many of those civilian shooters, this is not a job. It is a passion. So when they're when they are invested in it at that level, they tend to focus, be more committed to what it takes in order to get better. Whereas I remember as as a, a as a Marine and, and going through scout sniper school and and deploying overseas as the as the platoon sergeant. Yes, I was motivated to do it, but it was also just another aspect of my particular job. Um, these guys are spending their time at work, the 40 hours a week that they need to to work. But every second of their off time, they're dedicating to hand loading bullets and tweaking rifles and going out to shoot and practice and whatever else. So oftentimes those guys are, are, are better shooters. Um, but more importantly than all the physical shooting mechanical stuff, I want to know what their character is like. I want to know what their values are. I want to know, uh, are they independent thinkers? How humble are they? Is this a mature, uh, a mature person regardless of age? Or is this sort of a uncontrollable cowboy or overly emotionally driven person, which I can't have because of what ultimately the, the biggest, one of the biggest benefits of, of a, of a well-trained and professional sniper is his stability, like across the board um, because of the, because of the circumstances that they're forced into. So I would look for, for specific people. I knew this, this guy is, He's interested in coming to the team. Our team does not uh, test for specific positions. They test for a position on the team, and then you fill the you fill the opening that needs that that's vacant. Um, but there are steps that are in place to try and identify and or prepare specific SWAT members to be to do specific positions or to do specific jobs. And for Phoenix, and I'm saying this off of a, a state of affairs that was present and in place um, four or five years ago. So I don't know if the policy manual for the Bureau has changed. But at the time, there were two positions on the team on Phoenix SAU that, that had a time requirement for it, a time on the team requirement for it. And those two were sniper and negotiator. You had to have a specific amount of time on the team before you were eligible to even go to those positions. And that was specifically to allow them to do exactly what Tyler just talked about, become familiar with the other jobs that existed on the team, um, what the philosophy was behind how they operate, so that you learn kind of with a certain degree of intimacy what they're going to do since you will be looking over their shoulders and would need to be able to anticipate something that was going to happen. And then it's the intellect. There's, there's the intellect component to it also that says, you know, as much as I want to shoot that bad guy because he just killed three of our officers, there's a certain point at which it becomes somebody else's shooting. And we as snipers have to be able to, to know where that line is 
and then check ourselves so that we don't act uh, out of place and place one of our own team member team members in jeopardy. Um, I remember, like I came to the I came to the unit having um, over 20 years on the job already, and having been a sniper for a previous department SWAT team, a, a Marine Scout sniper, and a contracted security con, a security contractor <clears throat> working as a sniper. So I had a lot of this scoped rifle precision shooting background already when I came to the unit. The sergeant that I worked for, he could have waived that time requirement for being on the team and put me directly into a sniper position, but he did, he did not. What he wanted to see was, does Jeff have the ability to um, shift his shift his performance to different positions on the team because that makes him more valuable to me than just the guy that says I'm a sniper and that's all I do. So for that first year, year and a half that I was on the team, um, I ran CQB. I ran uh, less lethal and gas. Uh, I breached doors with a, with a Ram. I used a Halligan tool. I negotiated, I moved shields around all kinds of places. I set ladders up. I did all the other things, all the other, job requirements in order to show that so that sergeant felt comfortable saying he has the ability and the maturity and the humility to do something that he is not the expert in mm -hmm. and apply himself to that in order to become proficient so now he's valuable in from multiple perspectives now let's put him into a sniper position and that wasn't just like okay dominus dominus you're blessed go up on a roof it was um, a good year of, I need Jeff, I need you to deploy with Frank. Frank is the senior sniper on this squad. I need you every time you deploy, it has to be with him. He has to evaluate your performance. And then at the end of this process, however long it takes, uh, he needs to write a memo that says, Jeff has fulfilled all the requirements. He is solo capable to deploy on his own. I, I, I recommend that he be moved into a full-time sniper position. And then that, that has to be signed off by him and by the sergeant. Then it went up to my lieutenant and then my commander. So there were multiple steps in place to try to ensure that the right people were in the right place. Um, and within that time, if you didn't have, if you didn't have the maturity or the whatever to be able to, um, to complete that process, then maybe that wasn't the right job for you. Uh, and I think that that process every day being test day, so to speak, um, I think there's, it's valuable to an extent, as long as it doesn't wind up becoming like a hazing exercise, um, Phoenix SAU seemed to do it properly. And it was a fight for me. Once I started leading that particular section, it was a fight for me to maintain that because I think there's a lot of teams out there and I've seen it both here and elsewhere. There's a, there are a lot of teams out there where they, they view the opinion of snipers is that they, they go off someplace unseen and they don't really contribute a whole lot to the overall mission of what we're trying to accomplish. So it almost, and rarely do we ever shoot anything. So with that in mind, it makes, it makes this, it turns the sniper position into this kind of, uh, uh, what kind of a 
kind of a dumping ground, I guess. It, it sounds horrible to say that. No. But kind of a dumping ground where we can put somebody who can observe and learn, but who can't fuck up in the midst of the action, all the sexy shit that's happening inside the house. Um, and I, that, that's com it's completely opposite. Like, the sniper doesn't need to be the guy that you can't find a position for. He needs to be one of the more senior guys who understands the entire, the entire, the, the whole operational scheme of things that can see big picture that can supervise himself. Um, and I think that continues to be a fight, but those are, I think those are some really important points about, about who you select initially, who you recruit, how your selection process to get on the team initially is conducted and then what kind of evaluation process do you have once they're on the team to try to figure out where they're, where they're going to be the most valuable. While we're on the topic, I just want to give a quick shout out to today's podcast sponsor, Bolt Action Coffee. It's the brainchild of the Call Sign 66 team. Some good old Canadian boys just like myself. It's a community of military and law enforcement snipers and long-range precision shooters who are some of the very best at what they do. The attention to detail that they apply to the craft of precision shooting is the same approach that they take in developing their line of coffees. There's no compromises. These guys have a freshness guarantee to ensure that their customers receive the absolute best product at the peak of its freshness. And no joke, uh, when these guys send me out beans every month, it is extremely fresh and it was top of mind because my favorite blend that they have is called Overwatch. So it's funny that we're talking about Overwatch right now with Jeff and Tyler, but the guys at Call Sign 66 are amazing, and Bolt Action Coffee is something that you should get into. Uh, because obviously they're today's sponsor, if you go to boltactioncoffee.com, links will be in the show notes, but go to boltactioncoffee.com, use promo code ILET10, that is I-L-E-T-10. 10 you'll save 10 percent on anything that you purchase from these guys they ship it out fresh uh it is amazing stuff uh, make sure to support them again military law enforcement veteran owned uh which is something that we always support here at the tactical breakdown podcast all right let's get back to the conversation with jeff and tyler here we go the you guys talked about this um actually in vegas which was uh, and it came down we were i think you were talking about optics um, and talking about you, different types of glass, using it for different reasons. Um, and one of the things you brought up was it doesn't do you any good to be hyper-focused on one specific thing, whether it's the suspect in the house, when your job on Overwatch is to be actually watching everything that's happening. And if you have three windows that you need to be watching, being hyper-focused in on one spot isn't, isn't what you want. You want to yep. be able to see everything. So can we talk about that for a minute? I think it's really important. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of things that obviously we just mentioned this in the basic school too, because uh, the problem with uh, law enforcement society today, well, I shouldn't say it's a problem. It's a, I think we're getting bad or good information for one job and trying to apply it for a job that doesn't work. Uh, we met with night force while we were at shot show and had this exact conversation about glass selection for overwatch. Right. Is that, in the military, your job is much more, uh, uh, let me take a step back. Job in the military is completely different than the job that I do in American society as a law enforcement officer. Over there, everybody's a suspect. That you know, Everybody has the ability to get shot. Here, it's much different. And we're fighting an American citizen, not an enemy combatant, right? And so we get these snipers that come home from overseas that do phenomenal work. 
they integrate into the law enforcement world though and tell them, hey, this is a scope that I used overseas. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's a first focal plane scope and it's a low power of a five and a half to 35 by 57. And it's a damn telescope on top of there. But they're doing overwatch at extreme distances. Uh, our average engagement in uh, United States law enforcement is about 60 yards, 55 yards, something like that. It's not very far. So what I'm looking for in it and where we talk a lot about this with, and even the scope manufacturers agree, is that we need the lowest power scope. Uh, and in mine and Jeff's opinion, a second focal point scope. So it's the same reticle size across the board for everybody. And I can actually pick that up in any condition. But that gives me more of that ability to not say be so hyper focused in on only the front door and have to scan off of it to see the windows laterally left or right of there. Um, and it needs to be that option. And I need to have that option to be able to power up at some point in time if I need to look to the back of a room or uh, burn through vegetation to see what they're doing on the other side of it. So it's nice to be able to have those options. But we need to realize that the equipment that we select for us doesn't mimic the equipment that the military uses because we're asking it to do two different jobs. We're not extended ranges out there at, you know, 11, 15, 1800 yards. Uh, like I said, in the time on, my longest deployment's about 400 yards. Uh, it was on a 40 acre compound, uh, total just utter shit show. But uh, other than that, the mo majority of them are within 50, 60 yards. And I'm asked to do overwatch on the entire front end of home. I can't do that with a five and a half by, by 57 night force uh, that only sees the door handle and maybe the front part of the door. And that's very important to our job to be successful in that. Uh, when we met with night force, night force told us the same thing. They said they're getting a lot of these agencies that are buying these second focal plane scopes, uh, five, five power on the low end, six power, seven power. Um, they're even trying to tell them this is where you guys are going to sell these back to us. And they're like, nope. This is what our guys told us they wanted, and first, literally in six months. First ahead, focal Jeff. plane scope. First focal yes. plane scope. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did I say second? I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first focal plane scope. And so uh, they have these scopes for about six months, and they call them back and be like, hey, these don't work. So obviously, you know, what mine and Jeff's belief are from actively using this type of equipment and to what a manufacturer is seeing returns on said product is that's a huge piece. That's that's both ends of the spectrum given the same answer. Uh, in our opinion, we want the lowest power on the low end that we can possibly get. Uh, and nothing over really like an 18 power is extreme high end for the world that we do. Um, and there's tons of scopes out there now that fit that mold. Uh, but it's got to be able to do the job you're asking it to do in any condition that you're asking it to do. And that's the biggest change is that uh, people are wanting to play the military role and apply that to law enforcement and it doesn't compute that way. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of fallacies out there that, <clears throat> that need to be put into perspective. The first is that if I can zoom in closer, if I can see everything in more detail, then that will make me shoot more accurately. And the second is that snipers, we shoot people in the face and like, that's it. Um, neither of which are particularly true. So what, what it boils down, what it winds up boiling down to is um, margin for error in my head, right? I want the greatest margin for error 
at all times because that helps me um, defeat or overcome my own fallacies or, or my own uh, failures as a human. Um, we are the, like we, the human, we, the shooter are the most inconsistent um, component of the entire of the entire platform of the entire equation. So <clears throat> we um, if I can shoot if I can shoot a moving a moving man sized silhouette at 800 yards as part of a qualification course on a fixed 10 power scope, then I could pretty much shoot anything at any distance with a 10 power scope. Um, our, our, our thing with the, with the lowest magnification is to give you a greater mark, give an officer a greater, mar greater margin for error. And by that, I mean an increased level of situational awareness. It's so it's, it's easy for me to stare at this computer screen and I can shift my eyes and I can look out the window to see who just pulled up in front of my house. If I am zoomed in on this computer screen, I can see my face and I can see everything that we're doing more accurately, but then I have to move to actually look out the window. I don't want to have to do that um, because what's out the window is nothing. Like, like the car that just pulled up is my neighbor across the street. It's not somebody getting out of a van with a rifle. Um, if I'm able to, to pick that up more quickly with my eyes without having to shift my entire system, then that makes me more efficient. Uh, and it makes my team safer because with a wider field of view on a specific structure, for instance, if I can see that, that, uh, that, that breaching team standing at the corner of the house, moving across the window. Oh my God, excuse me. I hope that didn't come over on the friggin'. Anyway, <laughs> they're moving over to the door in order to place that charge on the door. Then I can, I can prepare for them as soon as they start moving. So I can start looking for other threats in windows, in balconies, in bushes around the corner, the opposite corner of the house, because once they get once they get close to that door, now again to get back to something I said earlier, now it's their shooting. If something happens, it's their responsibility. I'm releasing that that threat area to them because they're that close, and it's not worth like they're just as capable of handling that problem as I am. Um, <clears throat> I still have the high end of that magnification range to be able to, to, to pick out details and provide information. So I'm able to look at the door closely and say, hey, this, is, this door is a push or it's a pull door by looking at the, by looking at the hinges. Or yes, his finger is ag actually on the trigger at this moment. Um, or whatever. I can see the brass in the bottom of the shotgun. Um, and so I know he's got I know he's got rounds in the magazine tube. Little things like that are, are what, for me, what high magnification are for. It's not to increase necessarily, in most cases, it's not to increase the level of my own personal accuracy. Um, it decreases it. Yeah, I, it, I, it does. And, and, and there's one of the, like the, the aha moments that we have with a lot of, like beginning shooters who get behind a scope rifle and at a hundred yards we're, we're trying to zero the, the gun and they're zoomed all the way up to the top end of their magnification range and they're shooting like shit because all the movement that they as a human are putting into that gun is now is now visible Magnified. 
And yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it is, it's called magnification for a reason because it magnifies everything, both what you're looking at and what your input on the gun is. So you're able to see all that movement of your reticle and which, which tends to lead to um, ambushing the trigger or panic or like snap shooting, like it's perfect now. And then they do that and then everything tenses up and the bullet goes in a different place. If, if they're able to remove that distraction from what their brain is processing, then they're able to focus on the things that truly matter, like staring at the reticle, like their breathing, like relaxing specific muscles, and then mm-hmm. activating that trigger in the, in the, in the most precise way possible <clears throat> that produces an accurate, an accurate round. Um, so we well, really like, also, go ahead. I think, I think that also goes back to what we talked about in the class too, is though, is that, uh, forcing them out of that top end magnification and teaching them to shoot out the bottom end also puts it back operational. If I let you go to training every time you lay down behind your gun in the prone position, you're all fat, dumb, and happy, and you're poking holes in paper at full magnification, but yet then you get out on the street and you're deployed at 47 yards across the street, you can't use 18 power. It's just not a feasible piece. You're not doing your job uh, in the position you need to. So why are we going out and training on max magnification and power and fighting this shooting shitty groups and then getting in my head and saying, what's wrong today? I can't do this. Let's start to learn to use that gun as we're going to operational, which is another big piece in my opinion, and probably one of the bigger pieces of that. Yeah. You brought up something interesting. I think it goes back to, to that really brief point I made about going to some high speed training and wanting to bring that back. It, like you had said, that's still an issue, especially even when you get to units, tactical units that say, Hey, I heard this this team is using this kit. I heard this tier one group moved to this new new technology. Without and they jump on it because it's the next biggest best thing without thinking, is this what we need for our application? That's right. And I think and you're exactly right, because that's that happens all the time. It happened, you know, when I was with the military, we were in a regular, you know, infantry regiment. I wanted to, we all, every, everybody wanted all the high speed shit that the SF guys got. I mean, yeah. granted, they had way better kit than we did, right? Even the cold weather gear was better. So we we're like, yeah. well, why do we get the knockoff shit and they get our Tarek sleeve shit? Like, what, <laughs> what, you, what is this? Um, they never go, we're outside all the time. Anyways, I digress. But well, that, I, I mean, it does, it, it does need to be kept in context. Like you have to, context can never leave the conversation. And, those guys are using that equipment because they specifically need it for, for, they need it for a specific reason. Like, and, and, you know, Tyler mentioned something about first and second, second focal plane reticles. There's nothing out there. There's no, in no way do I think, do either of us actually think that a first focal plane reticle does not work for us law enforcement as a sniper. It does. And it can, the, the issue is a second focal plane in our opinion, works better and is more appropriate for our circumstances. Now, if I were, if I'm shooting long range stuff, if I'm overseas and I, I'm, I'm looking for, for targets that are ex- at extended distances, yes, I want a first focal plane reticle because of the benefits that it gives me in that style of, of, of reticle. <clears throat> but for what we're doing, a second focal plane reticle makes more sense. Just like for the SF unit, 
that cold weather gear makes more sense for them than it does for me in a line company because they're actually humping to the top. They're getting dropped off by a helicopter at 11,500 feet. I'm, 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 I'm not, if I'm not doing that, then I don't necessarily need that equipment. It'd be nice to have, but I don't need it. So it can't be taken for granted that just because some tier one military unit is using this, this equipment, then it is the best. And that's what we should be using. Like it's not, there's not that correlation is not there. And just because one, one team uses it doesn't mean that another team must. And that's one of our big things too, is that um, we can take the, we can take those equipment choices and those tactics and techniques, and we can take the lessons that they've, that they're handing us, but it's our job to translate them into how they apply to us because it's the, the, the circumstances and the environments are vastly different and the requirements of each of each of those groups of people are vastly different and we'd be foolish to just automatically take something and slap it on our rifle and say this is going to do everything when when um it might do everything up to a certain degree and then after that it fails because it's not it's not the correct it's not the correct piece for for the for the mission that we're hmm. that we're given um so I don't know. Good points, deep thoughts. I think these are these are hard questions that have to be answered um, with as much integrity and honesty about what you're doing and why you're choosing it in the first place. I was as you were talking there. Um, I was reading up on first focal plane versus second focal plane because, like I said, I'm not a shooter. So um, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because this is my cursory information over 30 seconds of brief reading. Uh, a first focal plane scope, the, the reticle size will change based off of the magnification you're using. And a second focal plane, the, the reticle will remain the same size. Is that the yes. long and short of it? Yes. And the reason it does that is because on the reticle, you've got all the hash marks and dots and all the little holdovers and holdoffs that you're able to, to use as reference points when you're, when you're aiming or when you're trying to account for wind or range. And those things are highly valuable. But in a first focal plane reticle, the reason it changes size with the magnification is so that those, those measurements on the reticle remain relative and to the proper scale throughout the entire magnification range. With a sec because with a second focal plane reticle, those subtensions, those little marks are accurate at a specific power setting on the magnification ring. Beyond and below that, you, you're losing, you lose accuracy in those. So what, way, what, what may be a two minute of angle uh, space from the center of the reticle to that first hash mark, that, that two minute subtension is only accurate on the reticle at one power setting above and below that it becomes it, you get varying degrees of accuracy as to how much you're actually getting so i can <clears throat> i can measure two minutes of angle on a 100 yard or a 200 yard target right which gives me four inches and i can then zoom that scope in or out and that four inches shrinks or increases depending upon the magnification um 
and th those hash marks, those th the design of those reticles is done for a specific reason and are absolutely 100% usable. Like they are an important part of, a, of the function of a first focal plane reticle. However, given the distances that we, that, that uh, police snipers typically uh, deploy at, wind is generally not a huge factor and because of the range as a, as a function of the range. Um, so we don't necessarily need that. And in addition to that, we're not shooting in general, we're not shooting multiple targets at different ranges with a lot of difference. So I'm not necessarily engaging a target at 50 yards at 225 yards and at 415 yards. Whereas in the military, I absolutely may, and that that's that's a that may be a common occurrence depending upon where you're where you're at or what you have to deal with. Generally, we're dealing with a single target who is mostly static, and if he's moving, it's generally laterally as opposed to depth. So <clears throat> we the single focal plane reticle allows us to have a nice great big reticle that is easier to see and more precise for what we're trying to doing, regardless of what the magnification is. So I can be all the way down at the bottom and see everything and know that my team is stacked on the corner, ready to move. And then that guy moves and he picks up something and I don't know what the hell it is. Now I can zoom in on him to see what that is, advise, put that information out and still, and at regardless of, of which, which view I have, what field of view I have, the reticle remains exactly the same and gives me a nice easy aiming point. With a first focal, if I go all the way down to the bottom of the magnification range, then I wind up with a very small reticle intersection that whose lines become hair fine and are very difficult to pick up in high contrast variable lighting conditions, um, generally in low light. And then on top of that, as you know, shit, I'll be 55 years old this year. As I get older, my eyes are certainly not getting any better. It makes it easier for me to see a larger reticle that has a heavier line rather than a, a very fine reticle, even though that reticle's subtensions up and down, left and right may be more accurate. So there's a trade-off here, but for us, the trade-off, the compromise of going to a second focal versus a first focal is 100% worth it. Like it, the downsides absolutely do not overshadow like the, 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 the upside to the, to the whole thing. Yeah. What, um, and, and Tyler, you may want to jump in on that, but uh, what it kind of just reminded me of what you were saying there is kind of, for me, it's kind of like uh, with like red dot, right? The dot is the dot is the dot is the dot. Like it doesn't change. So like, and that was, that was a learning curve when I first put one on a pistol and I'm trying to learn, learn that and, and figure that out. But once you get it, it's, it's the dot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shoot the dot. Um, yeah. And it sounds like that's, it's very similar to that using, using the glass that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is. It's and, very similar. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's about efficiency too. Like if I can see it, then I can, now I have more confidence. And, um, for like specifically with the red dot, lots of folks like to go like buy a red dot for their handgun. It's like one or two, a one or two minute dot, right? It's pretty fine. Um, my, the red dot on my gun is like, what is it? Six and a half, mm -hmm. six and a half minutes. It's a Trijicon RMR and it's the six minute dot. And I like that because why? Because 
what am I using this gun for? It's a defensive weapon. It's close up for the most part. It's, I want something that reaches out and grabs my eyeball and, and I put that on that target and then, and then I, so, so that I can shoot it. So, um, yeah, we are, we're just really strong opinions about that second focal plane reticle for those, for those reasons. Tyler? You, you know, we've had, uh, some problems with agencies that have showed up and had first focal plane scopes on their guns. Uh, one of the guns from Peoria PD is uh, one of the specific ones I'm, I'm speaking of. Older NXS first focal plane, when it was drawn down to complete zero or bottom end power, I think it was a three and a half power scope. When I would crawl behind the gun, it looked like a spotting scope that I could not see. I physically could not see a crosshair in that scope. So great. Let's say I make the unit. That's the weapon and scope I've been given and said, well, that's what you're going to make work because the agency's not going to pay you a new scope just because it don't work for you. Make it work. So now I'm forced out of that bottom end, have to dial the sub power up on there much higher than I would want to, to be able to operate that scope efficiently. So that becomes an issue. Okay, great. It works good for one guy. But what happens when that guy's no longer on the team and he picked that weapon specifically because it fit his eye? Uh, that's another reason for us to really look at those second focal point scopes. I've never heard not one person be like, nope, can't see it, have a problem. To, you know what I mean? It works across the board for everybody. Where I've seen multiple first focal plane scopes, I can't even see the crosshair on it at low power. That becomes an issue for the job and, and the operator because now they don't have confidence in their kit and they're not going to be a confident player for the team either because of that reason. And now as an agency, we're forcing them into that and that causes problems for the team across the board. What other issues do you guys, are, are you coming across? I mean, you guys are training officers from multiple agencies from all over the place. So is there, is there a, a commonality of issues that you guys see across the board when it comes to uh, sniper teams uh, within units or agencies in general? Um, or is it kind of just hyper-specific to, to each each team on its own? Like, what is there anything that you guys are seeing in I, terms of a... I think today from the stuff that me and Jeff are seeing, uh, I think the biggest problem across the board is retention. Um, and I guess as a training company, uh, good for us. There's business in that, but that's not what we're here to do. We're here to give you something and hope to God that person goes back to the team, applies it, continues to learn and makes their team better. But that's not what we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing that people are coming in, doing the job for a year, two years, and they're off to the next biggest thing. They're off to the races. Um, that's a huge problem uh, f across the board in multiple reasons. As a department level, the training budget, the training time, uh, you never get somebody in that position that's 100% uh, confident in their abilities because they don't have the time frame in the job role uh, to be able to answer the problems uh, that arise. And you know, as you know, as I know, uh, not everything's the same. And it takes a long time to build uh, that... Um, pile to pull from to say, yep, I've seen this before. Might not be this, but it's real similar. And to be able to assist your team through. And without that longevity in that position, it's hurting the entire tactical world across the nation today. Yeah. And to answer that question from my perspective, um, <clears throat> I don't necessarily see the, um, the group of guys that are out there 
doing this job as being technically um, less proficient. I don't think there's a proficiency problem. I think maybe there's a training time problem um, that can address effectively a, a lack of proficiency in one thing or the other. <clears throat> the one thing that always jumps out to me is, is um, number one, a lack of knowledge about specific techniques that, that we think are so like critical and valuable that they, but they're just, they haven't been exposed to it. And, and maybe that's a training problem also, or a leadership problem. But like one of the things is like tripod, using a tripod to shoot off of, it still shocks the shit out of me that there are some, some snipers out there who have never used it, don't quite understand how it's used, uh, do, uh, don't have the equipment because of that. Um, when I've, I've been shooting off of a tripod since, what, 2004, 03, somewhere in there, um, rec and, you know, buying stuff from Walmart and watching it break after the first use and then going back to Walmart to buy another one the next, you know, that the next week. So that glares at me a little bit. And, but even more than that, I think is, it goes to it goes to expectations and mindset like we have we as snipers the expectations that are placed on our shoulders um personally because we want to be better and we want to fulfill that role from our teammates because they know that we're up there looking over their shoulders and they expect us to be able to uh, gather the information or see the threat both of which help make them make better decisions or, or help them make better decisions um, up to the leadership who says like you are a sniper this is what this is what you're required to do and and when you fail why didn't why didn't it happen correctly the city government itself uh, to include the citizens because city government is who authorizes the expenditure of funds to to acquire to equip a, a team <clears throat> I mean if you really boil it down to what what the purpose of a SWAT team is, it's like the last it's the last bastion of hope to solve a specific problem because the the patrol officers have shown up and re recognized the fact that they have neither the tools nor the 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 tactics nor the training to safely or in the best possible way solve this problem. So they call the SWAT team. Now. Are there limitations on when a SWAT team is called? No, there's not. And therein lies the problem because it's not a daytime activity and it's not solely a nighttime activity. It's every climb in place, right? It's whenever you are needed under whatever circumstances and in whatever environment you are dependent upon, you, the SWAT team, are dependent upon to solve that problem. And when, I, when we see snipers coming through our courses that have literally subpar equipment from rifles to scopes to accessories to ammunition and then it extends into things like night vision like i i have a very difficult time wrapping my head around a reason why they don't have this this kind of equipment or the the, like the proper equipment night vision especially like how the how in the fuck are you supposed to save a life that you from a human that you can't even see or identify and then what are the consequences are 
what are, what are the consequences if you do solve the problem and it winds up being the wrong problem? Like you're you're we as policemen, we as snipers are putting everything that we our entire lives, everything that encompasses our life, we're putting it out there on the table and we're saying, I'm willing to sacrifice all of this to do this particular to perform this particular act. And the city is saying, good, because that's that's what we expect of you. But we're not going to give you the proper tools in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the multi-million dollar lawsuit, wrongful death lawsuit is is easier, apparently, for them to stomach than the, you know, X number of thousands of dollars it takes to buy to buy a night a, an image intensifier so that this guy can can properly identify the right person at night. I mean, we've had instances here in Phoenix where the wrong person was shot simply because they they changed their clothes to match the victim, mm-hmm. or to match the yeah the to suspect. match the victim or to match match the suspect. Then we've shot the wrong person, and man, that's unforgivable as as a human with a moral and ethical standard, and as a police officer who who is paid and trained and equipped in order supposedly equipped in order to do that job. Like if we. It, it just absolutely floors me that because of money, um, there a a city or a department or a unit is unwilling to give to to spend that money in order to to create success and achieve the ultimate goal, which is provide security and protection for the citizens of the cities that we that we serve and make make flawless decisions which is obviously never possible. Perfection is never possible. But we want to push we want to push the percentage of that as far and as high as we possibly can. So why would you allow, you know, a drop in the bucket for a city the size of Phoenix? Why why would you say, "No, we're not going to spend um $180,000 on on 12 night vision units that allow you to save us millions of dollars because you were you were able to shoot the right person or identify the right person not to shoot let's put it that way like for crying out loud it just makes zero sense and then they'll spend that same money or they'll reallocate it on some touchy-feely fucking emotional emotionally stroking goddamn thing that in the grand scheme of things doesn't make all that much difference no one is losing their life because they can't take a bus from here to there, um, it just it's just it's an inconvenience, mm-hmm. right? And an inconvenience pales in comparison to the value of a human life. Like how can you how can you make that trade? So the 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 the, the psychology behind it all just floors me, and I, I can't even begin to understand it. Um, but it's that kind of attitude and that kind of fight that snipers are facing that not only totally confuses me, but directly affects retention of these guys. Why would I want to do that if I'm not set up for success? Why is the city willing to sacrifice my livelihood and, and the well-being of my family and, and my retention as a valuable member of this police department? Why are they willing to sacrifice that for you know $12,000 because I can't buy a night vision unit for my rifle? Um, it, it just makes me it makes me sick and it makes me angry. Mm-hmm. It's disrespectful and it's it's saying that we're not our, we don't have the value that they that they want to they they want to push out to the public that we do. 
it's, and it's, every agency deals with the same problem. It's yeah. it's a fight across the board. And then when it's sad that we finally get it when an incident happens uh, and somebody gets hurt. Uh, yeah. We run a 50 cal program, and I've been asking for one for years. Uh, we didn't get one until a suspect shot one of our deputy VIPs uh, with 50. Uh, luckily, it hit his car, not him. They shot him in the hip at the 308, um, and then shot his car with a 50 in a fortified compound. Well, how do you fight a 50? Well, fuck, I want a 20 mil then. Kick my, you know. Uh, <laughs> but why does it come to that? That's when our uh, sister agency, our county agency, got their night vision. Uh, we got called in because we had already purchased it. The sheriff's like, why don't we have this? And they're like, sir, we pushed this across your desk 10 times. Oh, well, guess we need it now. But that's the unfortunate part about it. That's the way that it's being looked at. And you can even take, hey, this agency got it because of this. Oh, well, it hasn't happened here. And so it's that continual fight. It's We're failing to learn off of bad experiences and, and try and combat that on the front end. And we're not doing it. Well, too many people are, are operating on the concept of hope. Yeah. Of just hope. Like, we hope it doesn't happen. Well, it hasn't happened yet, so it's not really a priority until it does happen. And then all of a sudden, it's a bunch of, oh, my God, and finger pointing and and let's act now. Suddenly, all, all of a sudden, like just like with your 50 cal program, all of a sudden it becomes financially possible. Well, mm-hmm. how how in the world does is a police department supposed to operate on on the premise of hope when our entire job is to be prepared for the ineventuality that may come our way like we never know what's going to happen so we prepare you in this way you go through a six-month academy you go through dt stuff with with adam you go through taser training and baton training to give you and and less lethal firearms um to 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 provide options of use of force before you have to use the ultimate and then when when suddenly when something catastrophic happens all of a sudden that now brings it like makes it important uh, it, it just it it blows my mind i don't understand i understand i do understand that we as policemen cannot always 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 train for the one-tenth of one percent that might never ever happen in our career we can't focus all of our training on that to the detriment of everything else that happens every single day. But at, at some level, you have to kind of be prepared for that. You have to sure. be prepared for that one, one tenth of 1% that may, that may happen once in every 200 years. Um, because if you're not prepared, then you as a police department are not doing your job. At least if you haven't thought about it, if you don't have some semblance of a plan, something in place in order to, to combat that threat, then you're failing as a police department. And quite honestly, when it comes to, to night vision specifically, if departments are not issuing their SWAT, at least their SWAT team members um, with night vision, then they are being negligent. They're being negligent and they're sacrificing you because they don't want to spend the money or they, they have they have big plans for some other social project that that politically looks awesome and they can point to a statistic and a chart and say, look at what I'm doing for, for you, the citizens. Mm-hmm. When... It, you know, none of that matters. Not a single bit of that matters. And at the one time when this person's life is now hanging in the balance because they've been taken hostage on a botched robbery and we as the SWAT team are unable to solve that problem and they kill that person. Like none of those social programs, none of that other, nothing else matters to the world except for that 
except for that moment right then. And to be unprepared is negligent. And that's administrators failing to learn. Uh, you know, you see them do it on one, and then you hit them with the same thing, you know, maybe another piece of kit three months later. Eh, nah, we'll wait until that yeah. next lawsuit or that next bad thing happens. And then they wonder, well, why didn't we do this? Well, because you refused this. How many times? And they can say all day long, like, well, you don't understand. You don't get it. You don't understand how the how the budget works and how city government works. And, and you're, you're right. I don't because it doesn't make any fucking sense. It's, it's illogical. <laughs> it's it's illogical. I, you, excuses are just freaking excuses. Like you can't you can't tell me that out of this multi million dollar budget that every city runs on and all the federal grants that they get and whatever else that you can't carve out this much in order to ensure to help ensure the safety of your citizens and the success of your police department who is tasked with providing safety to the citizens. For fuck's sake, it makes it makes no sense. I need my, and you start drinking. It's reactive. <laughs> it's reactive versus proactive, right? That's yes. been. That's just the way it's been. Yeah. Um, I want to tie in a few things here, and I want to talk about the retention component, and I want to talk about the psychological component um, that you had brought up, Jeff. Um, and I think this is important. Um, you'll see, I got my, I got your six shirt on. We run this program for officer mental health. Um, mm -hmm. We know that, and and studies have been done. Let's say the average human being goes through one or two critical incidents in their lifetime. The average police officer over a 20 year career will, will experience seven to 800 of those. Mm -hmm. You go into tactical operations and that number goes up even higher because it's condensed because you yes. guys are getting called in and those are pretty much the majority of the calls that you get yes. to experience. Mm -hmm. You go a step deeper to that to a sniper and you have somebody who is looking through, like you had explained earlier, Jeff, you're looking through the glass at someone's face and at a moment's notice, you're waiting for the command or you're waiting for the, the moment where you have to pull a trigger and, and ends another human being's life. Mm -hmm. um, I spoke with an officer a while ago and they were involved in a, in a situation where they didn't have to shoot, but they got to the point where I they thought they were going to have to. And they had gone through the mental gymnastics in their head they've gone through the process of understanding i may have to kill another human being mm -hmm. and they said that that was harder than an officer involved shooting that they had been involved in where they actually had killed someone mm -hmm. because of the reds of because how it how it ended up resolving and they had gone through that process thinking they had to kill somebody and then they didn't have to that's something that snipers live with on a very regular basis and so what i would like to do is give you guys the opportunity to share that that component of your job in that that psychological aspect that what the the toll the stress and the trauma that that takes on on you as snipers or as as tactical operators in general that what what is it that we have to start doing to to making sure that our officers are able to to deal with that stress and trauma um, so that we don't have burnout so that we have that re retention on our teams because that's something that's very realistic. And I'm wondering if that's something that you guys start talking about from the very beginning, um, if that's something that's brought up and, and how do you approach that um, with people that are going through selections to, to become snipers on your team? So like, if you don't mind, I want I, I to answer that a little bit. So uh, I, I, I feel the same way that guy did that you were talking about. So uh, I was involved in a shooting with my sniper rifle about three and a half years ago. Uh, individual 
pinned down a couple of our officers behind a dumpster, had them held down by gunfire, uh, shot out like all four sides of his house, was shooting at neighbors' houses, just guy just flat went off the deep end. Uh, we showed up on scene within about an hour from me being on scene. Uh, we ended up taking, I had the opportunity to take a shot, uh, ended up shooting the individual and he died, uh, in, in lieu of that. Right. Uh, and it's funny because yeah, I took a man's life and it's not the greatest thing ever. It, it'll haunt you for the rest of the, of your life. Um, it's, it's something that you have to think about and that you have to deal with. And I think we need to be open with more people about that, knowing that you are going to have to deal with that and that you have to answer it. Don't just put it in the closet and walk away. But the bigger piece of this is, is that there was finish to that. I made the decision. I went through the process. Uh, the trigger was pressed. Uh, the job uh, was successful in saving other people's lives. Unfortunately, the gentleman lost his life over his actions that day. Uh, fast forward about a year down the road, uh, had an individual who uh, kidnapped a high school student, uh, did some stuff to her that's not appropriate, and uh, we ended up getting her out. He barricaded, and I went through the process that this we had already I had made that decision that. We were in the process of shooting that individual. Um, and it's funny to hear that, that other people hear it as well um, or feel the same way. That's haunted me much longer than uh, the shooting has. And I never pressed the trigger. I watched the guy. I had perfect view of him. I could see the change in his views. I could see the change in his body mannerisms. And it indicated to me that he was coming for a fight. Uh, ultimately did not do so and gave up. But why does that haunt us? And I think that that's something that needs to be brought up in training. And I bring it up uh, at our academy level uh, because I think the sooner that we can catch those individuals in real life scenarios that any officer has gone through and give them their feeling and tell them, hey, this is probably a natural response to this um, and expect something of this. Is it going to be the exact same for everybody? Absolutely not. But there's probably going to be some form of similarities there. Um, and then we advance it to the team. I literally break every bit of my experience on the team down and tell them, hey, here's what's haunted me. Here's what's been okay. Uh, here's what I still have to deal with on the daily basis. Um, and that's what it really comes down to is are you open enough and are, do you have the ability uh, to train that side as well? It's not about just pressing the trigger. It's not just about finding the perfect hide. It's about ensuring that they have that mental stability and the understanding of the consequences of that job um, and how it's effect. And if it's not you or somebody on your team, somebody else out there does, and that needs to be brought in and that needs to be brought up and taught um, on that individual. And if once it does happen, I think we have a greater responsibility of continuing to check back up on them and, and follow through on the latter end of it and not just say, well, they told me they're fine and allow them to move on. Um, but it's really about learning to teach uh, the mental aspect of the job. But to do it, we have to have people that have been in that position long enough to stay there to have those experiences to give. Yep. Completely agree. <clears throat> I think the, you know, the, the, I think the responsibility falls on us individually more than it does on anybody else, but team leadership and, and, by team leadership, I don't mean actually just the physical team leaders of this that organization, but leadership as in like Tyler and I are on the same team and we bring it up to each other. So that's that form of leadership as well. Um, I think we can go on and on about about 
you know, seeking help or going through an employee assistance program or, or talking to a pastor or whatever else. And I think we all are aware of those resources being available to us. Um, rarely, obviously, I think it's fairly obvious, although I don't have statistics or anything to back anything up. But I, I would say it, it's a fair statement to say that obviously we don't take advantage of those things the way we should. Um, and, and that goes back to what I mean by the responsibility falls primarily on us as individuals. We have to be humble enough to be able to get rid of the macho, I'm a policeman, I think I can handle it kind of an attitude, even when you're not feeling it and be able to go and, and, and talk it out with somebody. Um, so having said that, I, I wanted to, I mean, I, I wanted to recognize that those resources are in place and that we should have the maturity and the humility to actually do that ourselves. But at the same time, it also, for me, boils down to or falls upon remembering and being aware of who we are individually, like ourselves. In other words, those dreams and those aspirations and those things that you wanted to do as a 16 or 17 year old are not invalid simply because you're now in this profession. And I say this from personal experience because yes, I have seen that veteran that I described earlier in the show. I have seen him, I watched that entire thing play out and I, I was speaking to him under my breath as if he could hear me asking him not to do this. And it, it became an emotional uh, 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 barrier for me to get past that specific incident. And then it happened again with another guy sitting at the base of a flagpole, again, at the same VA hospital. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, I think it's like I know that from my personal experience, I came on this job thinking that the 20 year mark would never arrive, that it was so far off, I didn't have to worry about things like retirement or anything else that I wanted. This was so exciting and so new and so freaking awesome that all I wanted to do was stay at work and continue to do this job and focus on being the best at whatever it was that 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 I I, I focused on. And then came the SWAT team thing, which is like like big shit on top of that big shit. <laughs> and suddenly becoming a tactical officer who was proficient and the best and it was satisfying my own mental image of what I would, what that meant, what being a SWAT officer meant, drove everything that I did. And it was to the, to the detriment and it sacrificed a lot of things here at home, a lot of things with my family and my kids, a lot of things in my life outside of this job you know, it's, it's, there's a cliche that says like this job, this isn't a job, it's a calling. And to a certain extent that is true because it takes a, a specific kind of personality to be able to do, to be a, a policeman for however long for a career. Um, but when you add into that, like the awesomeness and the romantic side, like you mentioned before, the romanticizing of this like a position like this on a SWAT team or as specifically as a SWAT sniper when when you when you add that layer to it it becomes something that is all consuming and you wind up like i said you wind up sacrificing all these things in order to focus on being good or being the best at this one thing and i think that many officers get so entrenched in that in that 
mode of thinking that they disregard their own mental and emotional and spiritual health because they're so focused on that and they forget about or they neglect all these things that truly bring them joy and and peace and are what they're actually literally working towards at the end of their career when i retire i'm going to do this i'm going to go there i'm going to buy that um just because you're you have retirement plans to focus more on some of those things doesn't mean that you completely like lock them away in the secret box until you get there and then all of a sudden open it and expect it to be this explosion of awesomeness you you, you can't do that you have to i i feel it's important that you maintain a level of passion interest and involvement in those things that bring you that peace and joy and allow you to disconnect while you're continuing through your career because at the end of it you 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 may well right wind up with regret and resentment towards the career that has now made it possible for you to do all this stuff so it's this weird like circle of life kind of a thing um but i know like in my own life there, there are things that I get more joy out of than anything I would ever do on the department. And yet I've let those things fall by the wayside and am having to, to a certain extent, rediscover some of these things and recognize the value that it has in my life as a human rather than its value in my life and how it benefits my profession. I think those are two separate things. And I think keeping that balance is, is super important to longevity in the job and um how your 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 degree of performance and dedication in in what you are what you're expected to do and what your job is or what you know what you should be doing as a as a good person um <clears throat> but it's i mean it's it's a real difficult nut to crack because i think a lot of us kind of look at at this or that traumatic incident um or experience as being well, I don't feel any different. I'm not thinking anything different. So I must be okay. And yeah, maybe you are for the short term, but it, it may be years before you recognize, like, why am I so angry all the time? Why did I just freaking yell at the dog that way? Why did I react to my wife this way? And it's that cancer of stress and anxiety that works inside you constantly without you knowing. And then it all comes out in with, changes in behavior and attitudes that are detrimental to like living your regular life and interacting with normal people. Um, so I don't know if that totally answers the question. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I think those are important points. And we try to bring those up in our, in the courses we teach and some of these guys that are just starting a career like us, Tyler and I at the, at the police Academy talking to recruit up to like the class we just had last week like tyler mentioned it was a younger class and guys who are still have another 20 plus years before they before they either can or will retire um and being able to stick this in their brain so that they think about it at least or consider it um all we can really do because we obviously we can't force anything and we can't require something like that but I wish somebody had had this conversation with me 20, 25 years ago. 
that's what I was just getting ready to go, is same thing. 20 years ago, it was shut up, suck it up, move on, because it's going to happen yeah. again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but hence the reason we have those problems today. Hence the reasons that we're having uh, the suicide rates, the the people quitting because they can't handle it, um, because they're not dealing with it. But I think it's better now on the forefront that we're actually bringing that up in training. Like, do you realize what you signed up for? Do you realize what you're possibly going to see? You're going to see it magnified. It's going to be in your face, right? But thank goodness that we've realized that and that we're starting to implement that and really um, make that a a decent piece of the of the program so they have that understanding. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, listen, first off, boys, I uh, just appreciate the hell out of you sharing your stories and your, your thoughts on that. I know it's always a, a difficult discussion, but I think it shows that the importance of it, that you guys talk about it, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's such a key thing is, is just having the conversation, right? And, and letting... Yes. The officers know, like, it's okay. Have conversations. You don't have to do it on a on an international podcast. <laughs> right. But, you know, I say this every time to everybody who watches anything we do mental health related. My my phone number, my email, and everything is out there. If you need to talk to somebody you don't know who, literally call me. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not an expert by any means, and I'll never pretend to be. But guess what? I can put you in touch with, with people that, that can help. Or... Talk to people within your own circles, right? I mean, it's it's sure. crucial. Um, but what I'd like to also do is, is obviously that was a heavy, heavy part of the conversation. Um, I'd like to I'd like to move on a bit to a few last things. Um, I want to talk about training, but I also want to talk about some of the fun stuff um, that you guys do get to do because um, I remember when I was uh, when I was still in, I had the opportunity to kind of help out with the sniper school that was happening at the time. Um, and I swear to God, I've never heard funnier stories in my life than some of the stuff that happens at sniper school. And so, um, is there anything top of mind to you guys that you're like, there's no way that this actually happened. Is there stuff that you guys have seen or experienced within the training that you guys have done? Um, that is just a, just something entertaining that you, you would like to share that you're just like, wow, I can't believe that that shit actually just happened. Jeff is the best firewalker I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff is a phenomenal firewalker. Um, that is like the best picture I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, we have a course where it's our uh, intermediate school and uh, you know, we, we camp out for the class. So it's more than just a school, right? Because we get as much out of the evening time, sitting around the campfire, having a drink, and actually physically getting to know some of the students in the class that choose to camp with us, you know? Well, uh, by end of the week, uh, typically get fairly comfortable, and Jeff thought it would be good to bring out a trick and show us how to firewalk. So uh, it's been like literally a topic of conversation in the sniper world in Arizona about how well Jeff can walk fire. And it really wasn't a walk. It was more like a fly through fire, but still absolutely epic. And I love uh, showing up places and everybody wants to know <laughs> if at the next school, if Jeff's going to firewalk. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you use the term firewalking because there was no walking on fires. Okay. Jackass. <laughs> now we we you know, we have these bonfires and, and this this course is unique in the in that we do camp out um close to or on like the range where we're shooting. And it's remote 
and it's like BLM land and it's just like freaking camping. Um, so we have, yeah, we have these, these epic bonfires in the evenings, which like create it. It's not only practical because we do this course in December and it's, it does in fact get cold in Arizona, especially out in the open desert. Um, but it, it's this great social interaction that we have as instructors with the entire class and then the class gets to interact with each other and it, 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 it really is super beneficial to the learning experience. Um, however, as one would expect, this also includes um, some really good food and a drink or two. Um, and, and the bonfire, the fire goes from, you know, like, like reasonable to unreasonable <laughs> rather quickly. <laughs> and it becomes something that like the ISS is flying over taking pictures of saying, oh my God, look at that. But um, yeah, I just decided that I was the right man to, to, to leap through and over this fire on this particular evening. <laughs> and it worked out, it worked, it worked out pretty well. It could, of course it could have gone horribly bad, but uh, to my own credit, I guess it worked out pretty well. Um, that, that, that was a lot of fun, but I don't, I don't have anything necessarily that's like, would be super entertaining, um, that like I have seen, I mean, I've seen a few things, but I think it's, it's fairly, unfortunately it, it it's, it's fairly mundane. Um, I don't know. The, the sniper school is an interesting thing because it's so, it's so specific. It's such a kind of a niche sort of a thing. Um, and we, we, we do a lot of fun stuff like jumping through fires or taking close up high quality macro fo photographs of a cow pie or, uh, you know, little, little things like that. And, and, but, but we, we certainly don't get crazy to the extent that it becomes, um, sort of gimmicky or, or, or takes away from the seriousness of why we're there. Um. Oh, it's a huge piece of the school because I think we learn more about us and the interaction with the students, especially at this class, because you get you're nobody's in a hurry to go home. Nobody's in a hurry to get away. Everybody is there and it's open. And then after class, that's when like the real conversation happens. And that's when it's a good time. And we're not the instructors anymore. We're just another guy that gets to set bullshit with these guys and they get that interaction back with us. And I think that we get more training value out of that in specific aspects of it than we do the actual class, you know, because now it's that application, it's story time, and we get to vent that out. And there's uh, 20 like-minded guys standing around a fire, drinking a beer, having a, a shot of whiskey, and being able to understand and talk through that kind of stuff with them guys, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously trying to build the tightest community that we can. And if it takes a camping and shooting school to do it, then let's, then let's go do it. But mm -hmm. it was just, it was a fun time, man. It's uh, it, it's literally been talked about in multiple realms. Uh, and we get asked about it quite a bit, but uh, no, man, it's a, it's a really good time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you guys were able to step out and, and kind of start up your own thing. And I think that's phenomenal. I'm excited to, to help support that any way that we can before we, before we end things off here with the podcast, um, is there anything that's top of mind for you right now? And, and I'll give each of you a second here. Just what would you like to share with officers right now? Um, obviously, there's a lot of shit that's going on in the world. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on probably within your agencies even. 
Um, what what are those what are those messages that you guys usually put out kind of at the at the start of the end of your courses that you guys run just just for guys to for know for general knowledge? Um, and I might be stealing something from Jeff because I'm I stole it from him. Is is a big thing is don't be afraid to say no, um, especially at this level, right? Um, we can't always be the answer. If we can't do it, say it. Uh, don't force yourself into that bad position. Um, literally, if you can do it, do it. If you can't, have the fortitude to say no and don't put yourself in a bad position because somebody else who's sitting behind a desk in a mobile command post tells you to do something. They don't know. And we need to be able to have that mental fortitude to do so to be able to tell them no. Love it. Yeah. And for me, I think it would just kind of go back to what I was alluding to about life priorities and balance. Um, for any officer, regardless of what your assignment is, it is vitally important for you to keep things uh, in perspective, um, to not drill down on one specific thing so much that everything else in your life suffers. Because yes, it is a calling, but yes, it is only a job. Okay, and and good on you for accepting the responsibility that this that this job requires, because we need people that are truly dedicated and committed to to doing the job of policeman as 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 best as possible, as competently and as honestly and as compassionately as possible. Um, but there's no requirement for you to destroy your own life uh, or come to that realization when it's too fucking late. Like the, the time for action is now and you you have to take steps to ensure that at the end of the day when you get your plaque and your handshake and you walk out the door for the last time at the end of the day not are not only are you satisfied with where you have been and what you've accomplished but where you are going and what you're about to to embark on it's like there there is no reason why cops should be dying from a heart attack within five years of their retirement. There, there's no reason why that should happen. Nope. Um, whether it's a mental health thing, whether it's a physical health thing, whether it's um, an attitude or a personality thing that you've worked yourself into, um, you have got to take steps in order to prevent that from happening because it is in fact preventable. So keep things in perspective, do what you need to do to ensure your longevity for the remainder of your life when you're actually able to enjoy things and do what you want. Um, so that's my, my biggest piece to police officers as a whole. Well said. Well, I can't do anything better than that. So we'll leave it there. Um, I want to say thank you to you guys for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. Thank you for everybody for listening to the podcast. And if you want to check these guys out, uh, standing offhand, all the links will be in the show notes and wherever you're watching this, we're going to link it over as you can connect to these guys directly. Gentlemen, I appreciate the hell of you taking the time, and hopefully we'll be able to do this again. Absolutely, man. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. Join the ILET Network now. Go to ILET.network. That's I-L-E-T dot network.